Our, our speaker uh, hails from uh, the Lone Star State of Texas uh, originally. Uh, he has a, a, a career that started off in university. He graduated to the United States military, did, uh, did saw some service. He had originally intended to go to Vietnam, but ended up in, uh, in, in Germany. Uh, after that, he, he found himself in a number of occupations, including uh, that, as a, uh, that of a journalist. He ended up uh, uh, in South Africa, uh, he's been in Bosnia, he's been up on the Angolan border, so he's a man of very eclectic experience. But the, uh, the area, two areas that perhaps call himself to, to, to our attention and, uh, brought, uh, and caused us to invite him to, to here tonight are the, uh, are, is a religious area, the, uh, the area that he will explain a little bit called Asatru, which is the, uh, the pre-Christian uh, religion uh, of Northern Europe and, and what values that might have of, uh, to, to offer us. And secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, a discovery made a few years ago in the state of Washington called uh, Kennewick Man. And uh, this discovery uh, turned out to be extremely important. And although it's not the only one, it, it, it is one of a, of a series that, the, the, the going, that will eventually have to reshape the way uh, we look at uh, who it was that was first on this North American continent. And now I know the cynics would say, well, you know, it's only money that matters. Who cares who was here first? But, but as you all know, one of the big games being played up here in Canada today is the, is the game of native land claims. And uh, who was here first uh, seems to be very important as to, as to uh, who is going to get what. Anyway, I don't want to intrude on the political message, and without any further ado, and thanking you all for, for braving it through the rabble, uh, our friend now from the, uh, from the uh, uh, slowly being occupied state of California, Stephen McNallan. Having just passed the, the 50 mark and sort of you know, being determined not to be on the downhill slope, you know, I've been thinking a lot about you know, life and, quote, what it means, unquote. And it's dawned on me that, that none of us really know just what impact our lives will have had. You know, we know that we get up every morning and we go to bed every night, and in between, presumably, we do something that we hope matters. But the days go by and the weeks go by and the months and the years and the decades, and before you know it, you're as old as Paul and I. And you're still wondering, you know, have I done anything that's going to matter? So in a way, the, the message that I've got, or a part of the message that I've got tonight, is one of hope. Because I want to tell you about a man whose life did matter. It mattered a lot and continues to matter. A long time ago, in what someday was to be the state of Washington, in the somewhat disunited states of balkanizing America, a man lay dying. And he was, he was about my age. Yours too, Paul. And he had had a rough life. He had broken a number of ribs, for example. We know that the breakage on those ribs was severe enough that it partially disabled one arm and, and caused him quite a lot of atrophy and difficulties in the, the later years of his life. We know that he had all of the usual sorts of aches and pains and 
arthritis in one thing or another that sets in to people as they go through this, this, this life that we lead. But the real reason that he was dying had nothing to do with broken ribs, nothing to do with arthritis. It dealt rather with a spear point lodged in his pelvis. Now, he had beaten the wound. We know that he had survived the initial damage. But what was killing him, of course, was the infection. And he lay there on the banks of what was eventually to become or to be known as the Columbia River. And he died. He left this realm for wherever one goes when one leaves it. Nine thousand three hundred years later, I got a phone call, and the phone call was from a friend down in the San Francisco Bay Area, one of the people who kind of stays in touch with. And he says, "Steve, Steve, the most astounding thing has just happened. They've found a skeleton up in Washington. It's ancient, and it's a white guy." And I say, "Come on, you got to be kidding! You know, don't tell me about Atlantis or Lemuria or you know what? You know, are we talking fringe archaeology? What is this?" I was a little skeptical. But as the days went by, the story started coming together. And it wasn't just from people who follow fringe archaeology. It was from people who are really serious about science, people that understand that science is essentially a conservative, a cautious uh, endeavor, a discipline. And the facts began to come in. And the story was something like this. Some while back, about two and a half years before the time that we're in right now, a couple of college students were trying to sneak into the hydroplane races on the Columbia River. And they were going in the back way, which meant kind of coming along the, the banks of the river and kind of wading through the shallows. I mean, you know, one does these sort of things when there's something important at stake, like the hydroplane races. And one of them decided to play a trick on the other one because over here in the water was this sort of rounded thing. <laughs> you know, it looked just like a skull. He says, hey, hey, Tom, look, look, there's a skull in the water. Well, it was. It was a skull in the water. So, yeah, obviously, they were a little excited, so they, they call the police, who in turn call the coroner, and the coroner comes out, and out comes all the guys in their scuba gear, and, you know, they get to strut their technology, you know, and they, they come out, and the water's only this deep, but they come out and they dive down and they look for fragments. I mean, hey, you know, I've, I've played that game. You've got to have the toys, you know. And they, they pulled out all of these fragments of, of, a, of a human being. The coroner looks at it. Looks at the skull in particular and says, hmm, white male. Okay. Coroner, whose name was Floyd Johnson, takes these, these remains in a, in, a, in a plastic bucket over to a friend of his who sometimes works with the coroner's office. This is a fellow named Chatters, Dr. James Chatters, who's been very involved in the case since. He says, hey, Jim, what do you think of these? Dr. Chatters picks them up. Hmm, white male. Well, okay, that's kind of interesting, but, but Chatters also points out that there's little incrustations on, on the bones. And these are not bones that were there last week or, you know, three weeks ago or, you know, last Christmas or something. These bones have been there for a while. So he says, well, it's probably, probably a pioneer from the 1800s. But just to check, he, he takes them up to another anthropologist, a third individual, a third professional now, who takes the remains, looks at them. And this was a, um, a female anthropologist named Macmillan who runs her own business on forensics. She looks at it and she says, hmm, 
white male. So, so far, it's starting to look kind of consistent. And that was exciting enough because um, Jim remarked that, well, okay, uh, this, you know, this doesn't happen every day. Usually all I get are just ordinary murders and stuff. But, but this time we've got somebody who's got a bit, a, bit, a bit of history. Little did he know. So he's kind of cleaning up the pelvis. And as he's cleaning up the pelvis, he notices, huh, there's a little something in here. There's something dark. And it's about so big, and it's kind of got serrated edges. And it's a projectile point. And it's a projectile point of a style of a kind that hasn't been in use for several thousand years. Well, Either some, there's some really retro Indians out there, or this is not, I say again, not a pioneer from the 1800s. Well, at this time, we got to crank up the high tech. So they, they took, a, took a bit of a finger bone, did the carbon-14 dating thing with it, and they came back with a date of approximately 9,300 years before present. Now, Chatters knows right away he's got a problem because... If word of this leaks out, and of course it does, the local Indians are going to really press him for the return of these remains. And in fact, very soon that materializes, and the, uh, the sheriff's department shows up in front of Dr. Chatters' house where he has his office, and they have him bag up all of the bones, and they take them away. As it turns out, the waterway where these were found is under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And they have a very sweet relationship with the local tribes because they have to interface with them on an almost daily basis on a wide array of issues. So there is a political thing right away. And the Indians really want this set of remains. Now, this is not necessarily characteristic behavior on their part because, as Chatters pointed out, he's got a locker full of remains, some of which stay there for as long as four or five years with no one coming to claim them. They don't really care about some of these remains, much more mundane remains, but this set they really want back in the ground right away, right now, no further study. Give us the bones, please. And the government, the government announces that they are, in fact, going to return the bones to the Indians, despite the anomalous characteristics of these remains. At this point, academia begins to wake up a little bit. You know, we've got some pretty bright people scattered around the country. Over at the Smithsonian, we've got people like Doug Owsley, who was very concerned about this. We've got Chatters himself who was very concerned. A lot of other really top people in their field were saying, wait a minute, stop what you're doing. There's something else that's going on here. We need to take a much closer look at these remains. And so a group of about seven or eight scientists got together and filed suit in federal court to stop the so-called repatriation of Kennewick man's bones to... Uh, to the local tribes. Well, now the scientists, of course, had their end of it. And their end of it is simply that this individual is really, really old, almost certainly is not related to any existing tribe, certainly not any existing tribe in this area, and he's sort of, you know, common property of, of 
of, of humankind, you know, and should be studied from that end. And I, I, hear, I hear that argument, and I sympathize with that argument. But at the same time, our emphasis, and by our, I mean our organization, which is the Alsa True Folk Assembly, uh, we had sort of a, a, a different take on it, a different approach on it. And that was simply that this person was a kinsman. And at this point, I must digress for just a moment and kind of give you a sort of the, the theological perspective or the spiritual perspective of where we were coming from. And I hasten to, age, to, to add to this that as I'm talking to you, I'm not trying to speak for the AFA. I'm not trying to speak for anyone but myself and, and my own experience and my own guts. But I think that my sentiments would be shared by many other people who, who also have my spiritual perspective. The way we see it, we are connected with our ancestors in a way that completely transcends time, transcends space, transcends borders. In a way, we see our ancestors, even back to the most ancient of times, as living again through us. We have a connection with those people. We have a responsibility to those people. We have a link with those people that is not diminished by distance, by years, and by the petty politics of the 20th or even the 21st century. It is a bond of blood, a bond of heredity, a bond of spirit, a bond of rebirth down through the millennia within our family lines and across the continents and around the world. So for us, it was very important that this individual, who certainly seemed to be more nearly related to us than to the Indian tribes, that he be associated with us rather than with them, that he be buried in the ground by the rights of his own people and not by the ceremonies of an alien folk. Well, needless to say, this was not a very politically popular or acceptable sort of standpoint. But nonetheless, it's where we were coming from. And so we also filed suit in federal court and a suit parallel with but separate from that of the scientists to keep the government from giving these remains back to the Indians. Well, right away, politics came into action. I'd mentioned that, you know, the Corps of Engineers has got kind of a sweetheart relationship with the Indians. And it rapidly went from a sweetheart relationship to something that was virtually incestuous. Um, the bias was scandalous. We found out that on approximately five separate occasions... Indians had been allowed access to the bones completely sub rosa, completely in secret. Word came out to us only because there was a security leak within the system there that called up one of our people and said, look, you need to know what's happening. You know, they're letting the representatives of the Indian tribes in, in to have the remains. We found out that they had actually handled the remains, which of course contaminates them from the standpoint of DNA to the point that one specialist down in California feels that these, this particular set of remains is hopelessly compromised scientifically as a result. They let them place objects in the box where the remains were being stored, but more details on that in a few minutes. And all of this done despite the fact that these remains were supposed to be strictly off-limits 
to all parties. Being basically naive and basically trusting and basically assuming that the system is really fair and will really work all right for us, we had no problem with that. And then we find out that the Corps of Engineers is going behind our back, behind the judges' back, behind the backs of all concerned, basically to, to play their particular political favorites. This policy of, there's no other word for it, discrimination, Bigotry, we might even say, continued and intensified as the months went by. On one occasion, a fragment of Kennewick Man was accidentally given to the Indians. You know, nobody really knows quite how it happened. Somehow it got into the wrong box and, well, and in this box got given to the Indians and yes, it got buried and no, we can't get it back and gee, we're sorry about that. The location, the portion of the riverbank where Kennewick Man was found suddenly had to be protected from erosion. And so the government brought in helicopters and dropped feet of dirt, layers of stone, planted trees on top of the entire mess, and enters, just, just for added, added good, good measure, placed artificial logs made of coconut fiber in and amongst all of this. Now, coconut fiber, of course, is organic, it will degrade over time and sift its way in very small particles down through the different layers of soil, thoroughly contaminating anything else that might possibly be found there. And from the standpoint of the scientists concerned, would greatly complicate any attempt to make further carbon-14 dating evaluations of these strata. An inventory was done on the bones last October, and again, more on that in a bit. And they found that some pieces were missing, in addition to the piece that was accidentally given to the Indians. What was missing were portions of both femurs. This is significant because next to the skull, the femurs are the most important part for determining what they would politely call affiliation i.e., to whom this individual is most closely related, because, of course, it determines things like height, which is now, now something that will have to be based on Dr. Chatter's original notes. So there was one abuse after another after another. Who took the bone fragments? We don't know. I strongly suspect it was not Dr. Chatter's. I know it certainly wasn't us. The most that we could get from the system at the time that the Army Corps of Engineers was in charge of the remains, was permission to go in and do our own ritual over the remains. And a small concession as that was, it was still a day that I shall never forget. We showed up in the morning in question, and of course there were all the usual news people, and there was all of the usual Indian representatives and this, that, and another. We were ushered into a, a small room, probably a third or a fourth of the size of this one, actually just a small conference room with a, a long wooden table 
and along the table were the chairs. And down at the end, down at the end of the table, there was a box, plain wooden box, about yay by yay, so high. They took the top off of it, and inside are little baggies. And some of the baggies are sealed, and some of the baggies are not sealed. And they said to us, all right, you can do your ritual now, but don't put anything into the box and don't take anything out of the box. Well, that wasn't a problem to us because we really didn't need to do that. But I noticed as I looked into the box, someone had rather beaten us to that because interlaced amongst all the baggies of bones were portions of cedar branches, little fronds of cedar about so long. We found out that not only had the tribes been allowed access to the remains, but in fact they had been allowed to put things inside the box. When this came out and was revealed to the scientists, they were most agitated because the things that were placed in there affect things like moisture content, chemical content, various rosins, things that are in, in the various uh, cedar fronds and so forth. We complained about this most strenuously. The scientists complained about this most strenuously. And I think that this ultimately led to something that was to happen some months later where the bones, thank goodness, were finally taken out of the custody of the, uh, of the Corps of Engineers and turned over to, to academia where, in fact, they are supposedly being studied this week. We shall hope that some sort of results are published. Skeletons are mummies that are more or less contemporary with, with Kennewick man. That is to say, anything before about 8,000 years old, or anything about that old or, or, or older, is they, they seem to be associated with a number of remains that are curiously caucasoid. Of the perhaps five, six, seven, depending on where you want to draw the horizon, set of remains that we have from that time period, Almost all of them, to one degree or another, exhibit these Caucasoid traits. So Kennewick Man was not a lone wanderer. He was not somebody who decided that Norway or the British Isles or God's nowhere was too dull so he was going to take a long hike. He was a part of a, a set of people. He was a part of a culture. He has a context. He was not just a sole anomaly, some Fortean event dropped out of, out, of, out of the ether. In fact, scientists have noted that as this very old group, as this very old population was displaced, so did the material artifacts associated with these people change. So apparently what we have is an actual change of population and not merely people deciding to start using a new kind of flint work or something of that sort. There was an actual displacement of population that took place back you know, many thousands of years ago. This led some scientists, in particular Dennis Stamford over at the Smithsonian, to note that uh, what would they call the Salutrian culture or the Salutrian style of making projectile points over in ancient Spain and France is actually very i.e. strikingly similar to what we call Clovis culture here in North America. Now one could say that, hey, you know, how many ways are there to, to make a, a, an arrowhead or a, or a spear point? But in actuality there are many ways. Flint napping, stonework, 
be it Clovis, be it Salutrian, be it whatever, is actually a rather deep technology. There, there are many different points of decision. There's many different points in making, say, for example, a, a spear point at which you have to say, well, I'm going to make it like this, I'm going to make it like that. And that decision will affect all the other decisions that are made thereafter. So if you add up all of those left, right, yes, no kinds of decisions that have to be made to produce one of these artifacts, you really get a very large number of possible combinations. And so the chance that Salutrian and Clovis just sort of accidentally happen to resemble each other becomes mathematically rather small rather quickly. It's possible, but it becomes very unlikely. So what we have is a set of artifacts in North America, the Clovis artifacts, that seem very similar to those um, of Europe, the Salutrian. We note that Clovis points seem to have spread from east to west across North America, which might be an argument in favor of a, of a European origin. We note that there is very little, if anything, coming across from East Asia down across the Bering Strait and down, which seems to resemble Clovis. So we don't really have a, a track. There's, there's really no artifact chain to indicate anything coming across from that direction, but we do have it coming from the other direction across Europe. One might be tempted to draw at least tentative conclusions from that. So what we've got is a most remarkable material culture that may in fact be, be a common culture between Europe and ancient America. We have the shape of the bones themselves. And this is most significant because Dr. Chatters, like most people who do forensic anthropology in your coroner departments and university uh, departments across the country, has essentially a checklist. And on this checklist, there's a descriptor of you know, various characteristics that, for example, a skull might have. There are measurements involved, everything from the length of the skull, the height of the jaw at this point compared to the height of the jaw at that point, uh, the breadth through here, factor after factor after factor that a specialist will look at. And essentially, you know, is this a, an Indian trait or is this not an Indian trait? And going down Kennewick Man's skull, this list of traits was rather unanimously non-Indian. There were no traits, or virtually no traits, that indicated kinship with the people that we perhaps mistakenly call Native Americans in the United States, and who I now resolutely call the Indians. So we've got possible artifacts, We've got the morphology of the remains themselves. But science, of course, can only be carried a certain distance because the, 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 the apologists are very quick to point out to us, well, you have to consider American Indian oral tradition. And at this point, science breaks down because there are, there are some American Indians, by no means all of them, but a, a sizable number who seem to have a sort of creationism going on in regards with the origin of their people. Our people were always here. We didn't come from Asia. We've been here forever and ever. And at that point, we're all supposed to say, oh, yes, thank you for your wisdom, your insight.